wonderful listeners, and welcome to another episode of Teach Me Something, the podcast where I learn about something that interests me and pass it on to you. I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. We're going to continue with the topic I started last episode on the evolution of sex. Um, Last week, we talked about some of the reasons why being an asexual organism seemed like it should be favored by evolution over reproducing sexually. This time on the evolution of sex part two, I want to talk about the benefits of being a sexual organism over being an asexual organism. I'll illustrate how sexual organisms could be more successful than asexual ones, therefore becoming the dominant method of reproduction found in nature. And at the end there, we'll also throw in a theory on how sex could have originated a very long, long, long time ago. Makes sense. So, how about you teach me something? Awesome. So the traditional textbook argument supporting sex as an adaptation is that it can help beneficial mutations become dominant in the population more quickly. So sex can speed up the rate of adaptation. Now let's try to visualize this by asking what happens when several new and beneficial mutations occur in a population of asexual organisms. So say we have a population of microorganisms where three mutations develop. One that increases their ability to find food, one that increases their resistance to infection, and one that slightly increases their reproductive speed. These are all likely to increase fitness, yes? Yeah, of course. (laughs) Duh. (laughs) Well, unless they all occur in the same organism, you know, at the same time, then which is obviously very unlikely, then they can't be passed down at the same time since offspring are just clones of their parents. Right. And there's going to be no cross crossing of genetics between parents because there's no sets of parents. Because that's what sexual reproduction is. Yeah. So (laughs) the crossing of the genetics. Yeah. So in this case, all three of these beneficial mutations are going to remain isolated throughout the populations. No. Really? No, that's not what would happen. Here, here's what would happen. An asexual population selection will pick, big fat air quotes here, because okay. selection doesn't do anything on purpose, so picking is, it's the easiest terminology to use, so we're going to use it. Um, picks the mutation that gives the highest fitness. Out of those three mutations, let's say the ability to find food more easily was the one that allowed that organism to have the most offspring, yada, yada, yada. So mm-hmm. the other mutations just get lost. We have to wait till they evolve again because selection is going to pick this genotype. Right. There's only one that can win out in asexual and they'll keep passing that one down. So the mutation will increase in frequency until it becomes fixed in the population at almost 100%. Almost 100% of organisms of that species in that population are going to have that mutation. And then selection will pick the next most beneficial mutation that exists at the time to pass on. Makes sense. So... But does that happen because within that population, only the most fit organism is the one that simply, like, succeeds the most? Exactly. And they can only have one mutation. Well, likely they will only have one new mutation at a time to pass down. Of course. So selection will pick the most successful one. Once that one's fixed, it'll fix the next most beneficial mutation and the next and the next. So in asexual organisms, you can think of it like a staircase where every like evolutionary improvement in fitness is like a discrete step, one after right. the other. But is after, it, one after the other, not at the same time. Is there never a time where if multiple 
mutations come to be within a, a population that there won't just be like a divergence of the population at that time. Like the, the... Do you mean speciation? Like the like two different species? Yeah. Um, Given enough time and if both were able to survive for long enough? Um, unlikely. They would, they would normally... We'll talk about this later, but if you're in the same patch of environment, you're not going to create new species normally. Okay. Normally. Um, but if you recall last week's episode in sex part one, we talked about how sex is basically a gene shuffler. So because of the combining and recombining of genotypes that occurs, you know, at random though, in sexual organisms, then sexual reproduction at least has the ability mm-hmm. to substitute many or all of those beneficial mutations into the population at the same time. Right. Um, I mean, as I said, that process is random. So you're not going to expect many of the offspring to have most or all or many of the mutations at once. But as you increase the number of offspring it's inevitable you're going to end up producing those superior genotypes Mm -hmm. that has increased resistance to infection, increased reproductive speed, and increased ability to find food all at the same time in the same organism. So even though there's only going to be a few of those guys, they're going to be so dominant that they're going to start sharing those mutations at a higher rate and and things are going to move faster on the sexual side than asexual side. Basically, if you get the right combination of the genes, then your fitness level increases and therefore what you have the best chance more more likely to spread your sets of genes and therefore like have a higher propagation rate of those mutations into the what do you call them like later lines or like later generations think about it like a bell the normal bell curve normal distribution yeah that middle point that average point is where every asexual organism is okay there's no variation there they're all right in the middle in sexual, you're going to have them on the entire range of that whole distribution. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you're going to only have a few at the, this organism is terrible and it's going to die right away. And you're only going to have a few at the, I am the best. And you're still going to have most right in the middle. Mm-hmm. But those I am the best guys are going to be so good. Um, they're going to quickly outcompete everything else. Makes sense. So like, well, first, first, we'll just do a little side note here. The reason that this sounds like, you know, a runaway victory, right? For, for sex here, like way right. better, Right. Um, but the reason it's not is because of that tendency last time we talked about of sex to sometimes break up yes. successful genotypes at random as well. Like this randomness factor is an issue why it's not a runaway victory here. But let's let's do an analogy that, that's going to help. Okay. Okay. So Everett, you're the GM of a professional sports team. I am. It doesn't matter what league we're talking about here, but... Dodgeball. As the GM of this new dodgeball team in this awesome dodgeball league, you are tasked with building a championship roster. Mm -hmm. So how do you proceed, right? You want to not only take advantage of your farm system and get that talent coming from within. No, this is a pretty clear answer. (laughs) We go for asexual reproduction, and it's just me. (laughs) Whoa! 20 times on the team. That's well, some big talk about not valuing <laughs> other members of our dodgeball team. Well, no, I'm I gonna do. not let you talk yourself into a further hole and okay. continue. You'd also want to look for talented players from other teams. You want to do some trades. You want to use free agency. You know, you want to you want to build the best of the best. An asexual organism is a GM trying to build a team in a league that doesn't allow trading or free agency. Hmm. They have a farm team. You got to work with what you got, and you got to make the best of it. Okay. Sexual organisms are able to pick the best players and make the star-studded all-star powerhouse team, pretending there is no salary cap considerations here. Of course. Um, 
Yes, some sexual organisms are going to build basement-dwelling awful teams that are going to finish way behind the asexual teams. Like I said, right in the middle of the pack, probably. Yeah. But those teams just won't reproduce anyways because their genome sucks. Right. I think I may have lost the sports analogy a bit at the the end. So they'll be gone anyways. Um, And then, so you have the best chance of building up a championship team with a sexual organism. Okay. Even if you also have the best chance of a terrible team as well. Makes sense. Luck of the draw, basically. Yeah. So one caveat I'd like to point out is that this really only is true when the rate of beneficial mutations in a population is moderate. Right. Which is usually the case. But, like, let's say you have a very small population. Even if the rate is normal, just does it, uh, because of the small population, the amount of mutations you're getting are just not going to be high. Okay. So because that amount is so low... Um, there's probably no advantage to being sexual because as asexual or sexual organism will probably put like substitute those mutations in at the same rate. Okay. Um, or like, what if the r- mutation rate is really high for some reason? I don't know. Nuclear waste in your environment. I don't know why, but uh, um, so it's obviously rare. But in that case, there'd just be so many mutations happening that again, it'd probably be equal with how fast they could put those mutations into the population. Um, and, uh, sex can also really lower your competition, your sibling competition, as weird as that sounds. So, like, remembering again that we're discussing asexual and sexual populations of the same species. Mm-hmm. Um, if sexual organisms outcompete asexual ones, then sex will become the dominant condition for that species. Right. So another reason sexual populations might be able to outcompete sexual ones is that sexual reproduction is more suited for variable environments. Um, all right, let's say you're going to play the lottery. You want 10 tickets. I know you don't like the lottery. You don't <laughs> pretend okay, you're going to buy 10 tickets to the got lottery. It. I'm pretending. You're going to pick your lucky numbers for your first ticket, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. What numbers do you pick for tickets 2 through 10? Are you going to pick your same numbers over and over 10 times? Well, they are lucky. <laughs> they are your lucky numbers, after all, is the next line of my script. Are you reading my script, or are you just no, psychic? Oh. just psychic. Well, We've of been course, long enough for this. <laughs> it doesn't take long, I guess. Well, of course, you, you don't do that. That wouldn't increase your chance of winning, and why would you waste your money like that? Instead, you're going to pick 10 different numbers. So in nature, you can think of the environment as a lottery. An asexual organism is picking the same number all 10 times, right? 10 clothes. Makes sense. It's hoping it's going to win, but it's got a 1 out of 10 chance, really, comparatively. Mm-hmm. Um, and a sexual organism it picks 10 different numbers, so it has 10 times greater chance to win. Um, but just like the last point we talked about, it, this only holds up under certain circumstances um so it's only an advantage for sexual offspring if there's something called sib competition yes sibling competition they just call it sib competition i know it sounds kind of silly but sure it's just to denote that the competition may be between siblings but also like closely related like you know cousins and anything that's genetically very closely related um is sib competition um so basically Organisms have two methods of distributing their offspring, right? So either their offspring stays put, they're grouped together. Mm-hmm. This is called patch structured ecologies, like beetles living on a rotten log. That's a patch. 
that log. Or offspring can be widely dispersed from their, you know, point of origin, like dandelion seeds blown on the wind. Okay. So in patches, there's going to be high sib competition. So the sexual organism probably has the advantage on who's going to parent that next generation over the asexual one of the same species. Right. Um, but if that competition isn't there, like maybe there's still lots of members of that species there, but they're not closely related. Um, the chances are going to be more equal now for the asexual members. Uh, if we go back to the lottery example, patch ecology is, you know, we're going to buy 10 lottery tickets in the same lottery. Right. What if we played a bunch of different lotteries? Imagining there, was, is... imagining there was 10 different lotteries, you can play your lucky numbers in every lottery and you're not going to decrease your chance of winning that way. Right. So only when there is that sib competition, only when the genotypes are tickets in the same lottery, is sexual reduction going to be an advantage through that diversity. Makes sense. Um, and another thing to consider is if the environment is very stable then the environment is less like a lottery. Yeah, it's more like a fixed lottery where they pull the same numbers all the time. <laughs> oh, when, when does that happen? Do you have some inside information for us? <laughs> if I could remember the numbers from Lost, I'd say those are the ones to oh. use right now, but <laughs> good unfortunately try. I don't. That's a good try to joke, but yeah. it was like halfway there. Yeah, it's okay. Um, Half joke is better than no joke. <laughs> on a related note, there are some organisms like... They're, they're mostly like plants and invertebrates that can switch between asexual and sexual like in the same animal at different points of their reproductive cycles. Um, and, and they do that to optimize their reproduction. So, for example, aphids. There are certain types of aphids that are going to reproduce asexually all through the spring and summer. Okay. Um, this is because conditions are stable, favorable. Um then going into fall they're going to mate and they're going to lay eggs so they don't lay eggs by the way when they're reproducing asexually really live birth viviparity they give live birth um and and some you can think of that winter is a much more variable season yeah you want the best chance for those eggs to survive over winter and also you know they want eggs for over winter right you don't want you don't want raising young well, preferably bugs don't raise them, but yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. So that's like kind of example of some of the things that, um, we're talking about here, but there's a special case of sib competition, which is the coevolution of pathogens and hosts. Okay. So pathogens are just, you know, microorganisms that cause disease, virus, bacteria, parasite, all protozoan, like all those little things. Um, hosts are the patch ecologically that that pathogen lives in, right? right. They're, they're like separate, very separate patches. Um, and so the pathogens in each patch are competing with each other to whoever can exploit the host more efficiently. Right. And the thing that makes this kind of scenario different is that both host and pathogen are evolving and changing at the same time. So the environment isn't really evolving in response to an organism evolving usually. That's why this is kind of a special scenario. Um, and in evolutionary terms, we call this an arms race. Cool. And in this type of arms race, there's an advantage to being different. Pathogens are going to select... Um, well, pathogens will be selected for to infect the most common hosts, and hosts are going to be selected to resist 
infection by the most common pathogens, right? Yes. So, and that cycle continues every generation. And as hosts change, pathogens must change. As pathogens change, hosts must change. On and on. So, there's rare types of hosts that can evade pathogens and resist infections. And there's rare types of pathogens that can infect a host they wouldn't normally be able to, who has no resistance, um, which is kind of how new diseases. I just want, this is what happened with COVID, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, for an example, let's, um, let's talk about HIV. So, like, an important thing to think about with these tiny organisms is that they have so many more generations to evolve than we do. Right. Um, like, their life cycle is so quick and they make so many <laughs> organisms that they're going through so many chances to select different genes. Um, so, you know, as, as everyone's probably aware, without medical treatment, almost everyone that gets HIV will die. Mm-hmm. And that's because the HIV out-evolves our immune response. So it's really, really good at changing the proteins on the outside. So like our immune system makes antibodies that'll match those antigen proteins on the virus. But before you know it, a new generation is going to change those proteins and our immune system doesn't recognize them any longer and we can't keep up. So that's why it's just, it's a, it's a tough one. Um, but, but there are individuals who are immune to being infected. We've seen this, especially in Africa. Um, there's individuals that do get HIV and appear to never convert to AIDS even without medical treatment. So there are those rare cases from, you know, that random sexual diversity that we get through our sexual reproduction, um, which is a little ironic considering that sexual reproduction is the way a lot of people are going to get HIV. Right. But um, but that does give us a little bit the only advantage that we possibly have over HIV is that we have the ability to evolve those things. Um, as an aside, I just want to talk about this because it's cool. The prevailing theory that you've probably heard is HIV crossed from chimps to humans about the 1920s in uh, Democratic Republic of Congo. Well, what is now that country. Yeah. Um, and it was probably a result of chimps that carried the simian immune deficiency virus, SIV, um, being hunted and eaten as bushmeat. As you probably guessed, SIV is closely related to HIV. Yep. So, but why does SIV seem to not really affect chimpanzees and HIV is disastrous for humans? Is the question, right? Why did SARS-CoV-2 do nothing to pangolins and bats or whoever? but it's been disastrous for humans. Well, because of the past of this whole arms race scenario. So there's evidence that over the last 2 million years, a huge epidemic wiped out most of the chimpanzee population. And the only surviving members were those which were immune to SIV. Okay. So I'm see where this is going. Yeah. Yeah. So they've had that time to co-evolve together, that virus and that host. Right? Yeah. Now it doesn't seem to affect them. Right. And theoretically, we'd get to that point as a human population with HIV, but probably we will not because nature and medical treatment, we've we've kind of yeah. interfered in this process. I was going to say. But that's the general theory. Like something mm, that we can actually literally look at in humans is 
the common cold. So over the history of our species, the viruses that, that cause what we call cold have probably been present for millions and millions, just like forever. Yeah. For the whole time we've been a species, there's been some viruses that do this more and more as we go along. But like colds can be caused by more than 250 different virus serotypes. So not just like one virus, at least five different families of viruses. But we've reached a point with them where we coexist peacefully, again, with the air quotes, like they don't depress our fitness. They're not making anyone. I mean, mm-hmm. yes, there's exceptional cases where a young baby or an elderly person might die of a cold, but it's generally not going to happen um, because we've co-evolved with them over so long. There's only so many ways an arms race can end. <laughs> one is one or the other species goes extinct. Correct. And the other is you co-evolve to a point where you can live together. Yeah, coexistence. Coexistence with no depression of fitness is the important right. part. So we've come to that point with cold. Um, and we're not going likely to ever evolve complete immunity or extinct these viruses because there's no selective pressure for us to do so. Right. We're not dying. <laughs> Yeah, it's not, it's not, not affecting our fitness. Yes. And therefore, it's not having an impact on future generations. Right. Um, so we talked about beneficial mutations, but what about the opposite, which are called deleterious mutations? Mm-hmm. Deleterious mutations have a negative effect on organisms' fitness. Um, so a problem asexual organisms face is that if their population size gets too small, they're in danger of just completely losing any genotype which is free of these deleterious mutations just because of random chance. Yeah. Um, so the result is that, you know, all the clones are going to have deleterious mutations in some locations of their genotype. Uh, this is called Muller's Ratchet. If anyone remembers their high school biology, it's a special type of genetic drift, which is just basically gene frequencies changing due to random chance, not selective pressures, just random. And it happens in small populations because randomness has more of an effect there. Mm-hmm. Um, so Muller's ratchet is named because of the ratchet wrench. And I'm going to give you your time to shine, Everett. Tell everyone what a ratchet wrench is. Cool. Uh, a ratchet wrench is... Um, it's a wrench that has teeth that fold in in one direction. And along a gear. So what happens is that as you pull the handle of your wrench in one direction, the teeth fold in and then bounce back out at the next piece of the gear. When what this ends up meaning is you can pull it in one direction and turn a nut. And if you go in the other direction, all the teeth fold back. And it means that you can only go in one direction on the nut. It makes it just really easy to ratchet in nuts and bolts. So how does that apply to biology? Well, I'm assuming that the important part here is that you can only go in one direction. As you click forward, you're unable to click back, basically. Gold star. Good for you. (laughs) Excellent. Um, Yeah. It's called Muller's Ratchet because it only goes in one direction. So because mutations are going to eventually occur in all genomes, I mean, that mutations will always happen. Mm -hmm. Just think of it like a computer code. Has there ever been a code 
in the history. I always ask you why a program works. How is it that a program works 9900 times out of 100 and it fails other time? Isn't it just following the instructions? How in the world? And I've never thought to think about it like DNA, where it's like, of course, that every once in a while, there's going to be a slight imperfection in the replication of DNA. That's just nothing's ever perfect. Yeah. If there was a perfect process, like, you know, evolution wouldn't. Anyways, this now makes sense to me. So like, you know, when your computer fails to boot up one time and you're like, I don't understand it, booted up perfectly a hundred times. It's the same code. I don't know. Same thing. Little mistakes. Nothing's perfect. Yeah. I think one of the things you need to think about is that the computer is like an environment. And every time you run code, it has some sort of interaction with the environment. And if it has an incompatibility with the current environment at the time, you can get errors. You can get miscalculations. You can get tons of problems. And so it works most of the time. But sometimes it doesn't. I guess in my mind, I have a hard time thinking about how a computer is an environment that changes. But um, oh. I just I just take your word on that. That is not, as you can tell, I'm, I'm going to stick to the living things here. <laughs> um, <laughs> so because mutations will eventually occur in all genomes, Mother's Ratchet says that first, all genotypes with no deleterious mutations are going to be lost. Like, there's no way to unevolve that mutation. I mean, I guess technically there is, but okay. the random chance of the, the of same it. mutation happening backwards, because there's different types of mutations that occur at the same locations, right? The same location and then back. No, it's just it's just not going to happen. We don't have to think about it happening at all. Um, and then it gets, you know, made worse as new deleterious mutations are added to the population. Then you lose all the genotypes with just one mutation and then two and then on and on and on. And so you're evolving this pretty poor population and it's small anyways, and it'll probably just go extinct, that population. Um, you know, in sexual reproduction, that recombination will result in genotypes with varying numbers of deleterious mutations. So yeah, you'll get some that have a ton some that have none. Again, natural selection is going to pick. Mm -hmm. My air quotes are back. Um, genotypes with less of the harmful mutations. So, again, like every other argument we've presented, there are circumstances where this is not going to hold up. So Mother's Ratchet assumes that the effects of deleterious mutations are additive. Okay. You know, that two mutations are twice as bad as one mutation. Three mutations are three times as bad as one mutation. Okay. If the combinations of the mutations together aren't as bad as being additive, if they're underneath that somehow, then, um, or if the population was really large, then we wouldn't see that type of random genetic drift. Um, then asexual organisms could sometimes have the advantage over sexual ones in those cases um, wouldn't happen as often, but you know, there's just exceptions to everything is what I'm trying to get at here. Sure. So when we're theorizing about these issues that are so complex and as paradoxical as sex, it's, it's really necessary to make some assumptions and simplify conditions to make the comparisons. So we're going to compare females that are sexual and asexual. They're going to be, we're going to assume they're the same species. We're going to assume that the only difference between the two females is simply how they reproduce. Nothing else. 
And in right. reality, that's not the case, right? But but to make a point or to do a thought experiment, right. you have to. And so we're going to do that, that now. Okay. We're going to make we're going to make that point and go on to this thought experiment. Let's say a species, a population of a species, we have some females that are starting to evolve parthenogenesis. However, that came up, whichever mutations led to that. Um, well, they're probably going to have less efficient reproductive systems than sexual females. And this is just because the evolution of any new structures and functions is going to be inefficient at first. Because of the way evolutionary works, it works on the basis of incremental progress. Any mm-hmm. little thing that's a little bit better will get selected for over and over and over until you've got a fully functioning system. But there's a lot of intermediate steps when you're not that great. Um, you know, it takes time for those mutations to occur. It takes more time for beneficial ones to occur. And then, and then they have to increase in frequency. So think about like flight in flying squirrels. That's not what we now think of as flight, but that kind of gives you the idea of a step that would need to happen through that evolutionary pathway to, to have that ability. And you know how slow it has to be. Now squirrels that have a slightly larger by one square centimeter skin flap can glide a little farther and they'll be selected for and then mm-hmm. on and on and on. And it will take a long time. And it might not develop further if those little steps don't provide any benefit. Right. Any change in uh, fitness. Correct. Um, but just, you know, I, I'm going to, I digress here. It's just when we talk about flying squirrels, I always think about Buzz Lightyear and the whole, like, that's not flying, that's falling with style. <laughs> Had to mention that. <laughs> Speaking specifically, though, of the evolution of asexuality, um, in the lab, they like to study these little fruit flies called Drosophila. And they've seen that um, newly asexual fruit fly lineages um, have fertility that's only a few percent of their normal fertility. Hmm. Very, very low. That kind of demonstrates that point empirically that newly evolved asexuality is just going to be more inefficient at first. So if you have such a drastic drop in fitness level, how does that ever stick around? Like, how does that not... all of the different conditions that can vary that I've been mentioning this whole episode, all those, Oh, but wait, if the environment's like this, or if the population is like this, or there is so many thousands of different situations when you consider all the factors that can go into it. Right. Permutations and combinations is kind of back to bite me because there's only a few variables, but they can be put together so many different ways, you know? Um, And again, lots of random chance because, like, think about fruit flies and the many thousands of babies they have, you know, so quickly. Anyway, a lot can happen. Yeah. Um, But, (laughs) like, another kind of point about these newly asexual females is that, like, okay, we're going to go back here to pick on, pick on the males. Those Those pesky males again. They ruin everything. So while the sexual female has some use for males, mm-hmm. the asexual female obviously does not. Correct. Um, males then become what? Obsolete? No, a hazard. A literal hazard. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> males are still going to try to mate with these asexual females because they don't really present differently. 
Okay. Um, so that gives the females two options. Option one is to try to resist and struggle and get away, which more often than not can result in inju- like injury and mm-hmm. not good things for the female's fitness. And they don't have good health care. <laughs> so. No. When we used to do experiments on Drosophila and we were done with them, they just went in the ether graveyard, so... We didn't really try to <laughs> try to do any fly healthcare. Yeah. Um, option two is to mate with the male. All sure. right, but that has consequences. So if fertilization doesn't occur, parthenogenesis is going to continue to be passed down and can establish itself in the population in the population, right? Mm-hmm. But if fertilization does occur, now we have one copy of gene from the male. Two copies of each gene from the female. Because remember, parthenogenesis, we achieve that through skipping meiosis. Yeah. Which is where the two chromosome, well, the two sets of DNA divide. Right. From two sets to one set. So if we skip that, now we have three sets put together. Hmm. So several situations here. A diploid sexual offspring could be produced. Diploid, diploid, two. two copies, everything. How does that happen? Well, good question. We don't really know. It's pretty cool, though. So in fruit flies, we've seen that if an asexual fruit fly is fertilized by a male, sometime the egg is going to respond to that fertilization by quickly undergoing meiosis. Oh. And ejecting that extra DNA. It's it's very cool. Who knows, who knows how that happened? Okay. Anyways, but... Now, she's not passing down her asexual condition. She used up those resources and time creating those offspring. Mm-hmm. She made sexual offspring. Okay. Asexuality is lost. Okay. Or, the egg is fertilized, now has those three copies of everything. Everything That's triploid, by the way. Triploid. Yeah. Um, I would assume that most of those wouldn't survive. Correct. Most of those die in the womb. Egg. Okay. Whatever. They die before being alive. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> um, or sometimes a triploid organism survives. Wow. But with less fertility or no fertility. Um, okay. Because, let's just think about it again, that meiosis is going to be splitting. So again, they're going to be sexual. But meiosis is going to try to split those three sets of chromosomes in half. Hmm. Right? You're just not likely to form a proper gamete. Yeah, I know that you has... odd numbers and dividing by two. <laughs> You're really not going to... A viable sperm doesn't have one and a half copies of things. Yeah. Um, or 1.2 or 1.8, depending on random crossing over events. We don't need to go into that. But it's just... It's very rare that you're going to make a viable gamete. And then rare still that that gamete will then be used... Be the one that will be used sure. in production. So... But the last case is you get a triplet organism... And it becomes a new asexual triploid species. A new speciation event occurs. That sounds crazy. It's cool. And it it happens in fish and reptiles. We've never seen it happen in mammals yet. But remember last week? Remember those live bearer fish and those whiptail lizards that I talked about? Mm-hmm. Um, that's, how, that's how they arose. That is how they originated. Um, hybridization. Through of a fish and a bear. Paula, no. <laughs> no, the fish are the bear. The fish are the live bearers. That joke doesn't work. Live fish and lizards. Bear. 
Okay, bear and lizard then, not bear okay. and fish. You're mixing yeah. up your jokes here. It's okay. It um, still works. Anyways, this is how those species I talked about last week were created. And as I kind of mentioned, these type of species, though, are reliant on males of closely related species to kickstart their reproduction by providing that sperm. They don't okay. use the sperm, but they need the sperm. So there's a new asexual species, but they're still reliant on males. And how is that going to go? M- maybe not well. Yeah. So all these examples are to show how hard it is for parthenogenesis to establish itself in a population, even after it does evolve, let's say, by random chance. Okay. Um, I think I've confused myself and everyone else because I gave a lot of information about why asexuality is probably better and then by why sexuality is probably better as far as evolution goes. Um, there, there's no real answers here is the thing, guys. Yeah. Um, what, what we've kind of learned here is that sex just might be so prevalent because it's hard to get rid of. Like, especially now that we have males around, it's tough. It's tough to lose the males. Females just decide they like them, I guess. Mm. Mm. Uh, yeah, that's um, not the reason. Like you said, they're just hard to get rid of. They're sticky. They're sticky. Okay. Evolutionarily, they're sticky. Uh, the fir- <laughs> So the first scenario we're going to consider is how the prerequisites for sex could have evolved. Mm-hmm. Like, we got to take baby steps here. To go from asexuality, no organisms are sexual at this point in history. How are we going to start building those those basics, the building blocks of sex? Well, thinking it probably um, evolved just because of sludge of pressures on a molecular scale, because nothing really makes sense, as we've talked about, pressures on a macro or population or individual organism, like, th- those those don't explain it, right? Mm-hmm. So we're thinking maybe on a smaller scale is what happened here. Like, think about everything that has to be done differently on a molecular level by a sexual organism. Like, fertilization, everything that goes along with that, recombination of DNA, which doesn't have to happen in an asexual organism, um, you know, making sperm or eggs, gametogenesis, making gametes. That Like, this is all stuff that needs to evolve in order to get to that point of having sex and making offspring. Right. Um, so, for example, some thoughts in the arena, like maybe DNA recombination was selected for, for its ability to repair DNA. It had nothing okay. to do with crossing over and creating new combinations of genotypes. It was just originally organisms that could repair their DNA are more fit. Sure. Okay. So that happens for that reason. Um, Fertilization was selected for maybe because when you have two pairs of each chromosome, you can, it's called rescuing bad genes. When there's only one copy, if it's bad, it's bad. Yeah, you're just going to keep copying bad ones. If there's two copies, one that maybe a dominant one is, is going to hide that bad recessive one and you never know it was there. Sure. So maybe that was a selective pressure, you know, behind uh, two caught like a diploid organism. So maybe all these molecular events started to build up for other reasons. And then once all that machinery was in place, things operated on a more 
organismal population level. Yeah. Maybe. Okay. Um, so here's, here's one theory. We talked about conjugation between bacteria last episode. Um, maybe sex started by a process like conjugation. So just a quick reminder, that little, remember that little bridge that bacteria can form yep. between each other to pass genetic information back and forth? So to expand upon it now, bacteria have these little circular loops of DNA called plasmids. They're just free-floating little circles. They're not in the bacterial genome. They're separate. And those plasmids are what are sent back and forth across those bridges. Okay. So I answered a question from last episode. Because you asked why it was called parasexual, resembling sexual, instead of just sexual. Um, And that's because the plasmids that we're exchanging aren't being incorporated into that main bacterial genome. Okay. So you're not recombining your actual genome, just these little extra pieces that, to be honest, evolutionary speaking, were probably separate organisms that bacteria engulfed and started to um, proliferate like that. And then they lived in the bacteria because it was a better host. Anyways, this is is talking way back into the start of life on Earth, Um, but it's a cool theory. So the plasmids can be beneficial to the bacteria, like some plasmids encode genes for resisting antibiotics. That's where we get this antibiotic resistance from, usually is plasmids. Um, But the plasmids can also be deleterious. Like they're not in the bacterial genome. They're doing their own thing. They have their own selection. Um, And so the thinking is in primitive eukaryotic organisms, so eukaryotic is like the opposite of bacteria, which are prokaryotic. The only difference you need to know, bacteria, prokaryotes, they don't have a cell membrane like around. Right. Yeah. And eukaryotes do. That's that's the basic difference that we need to know right now. So we can't do things exactly like that because you can't make these bridges if you have a membrane in the way. Sure. But like, let's say there was a mobile genetic element that lived in the cell and could replicate there just like a plasmid can do in a bacteria. Let's say something like that existed in a eukaryotic cell. So maybe this mobile genetic element had a gene that could alter the cell membrane to fuse with other cell membranes on contact. That sounds like sperm and egg all suddenly. Not quite like sperm and egg, but like a lot of events relating to that. I'm, okay. I'm about to get there. You always know what I'm going to say. I'm about uh, to get I there. Yeah. <laughs> so, so they fuse because of these little mobile elements giving them the ability to do so. They fuse. These little mobile genetic elements replicate. So they stay in their original cell. The replicated G, like DNA goes into the other cell it was fused with. They unfuse, close back up, and go on their merry way. Um, The reason that this theory is so attractive and that we can be certain is a completely wrong word, that we can think it's actually possible, is because this cycle of repeated temporary fusions and unfusions, like unfusions, that doesn't work. Uh, Uncoupling of, well. Yes, I like that. Defusion. Uncoupling. (laughs) Um, It kind of resembles present cellular processes that are used during fertilization and gamete formation. So it really does resemble those mechanisms. So we're like, oh, that kind of works. Yeah, maybe something like that happened. Um, Like thinking about 
think about within this theory, though, again, like I said, plasmids don't necessarily have to help the bacteria. Right. They're there to replicate themselves. They don't care what they do to the bacteria. It's not part of the bacteria's genome. So maybe these little mobile elements, they're not part of, they weren't part of the original eukaryotes genome. They are thought of as parasitic. They're only out for themselves. They want to replicate more. They want to do what they want to do. So they're going to mutate to help themselves spread faster, more efficiently, right? They're going to, like, those mutations will be selected for, even if it's bad for the eukaryote, but whatever. So you're going to rapidly probably spread this mobile genetic element. So most organisms, all of a sudden, most eukaryotic cells have it. And then they can all do this membrane fusing. And then we can start working on smaller baby steps. Um, and all that to say that sex didn't have to originally be generally beneficial to spread. There are other pressures that could have spread these things that wasn't because it was beneficial to the cell it was in. So it could have even been like a parasitic relationship with another smaller organism that, interesting. Yeah. Um, so kind of said it earlier, but we are really, really talking a long time ago. Of course. You know, I'm going to try to remember numbers off the top of my head. Like but not, you know, four, not, not last Monday, 4. but two Mondays ago. 4.5 billion years ago is when life on Earth started to evolve, if I remember that correctly, with very, you know, single-celled mm-hmm. organisms. Um, a few billion years after that, maybe, but but not recently. This kind of cool food for thought. Um, so what I'm going to leave you with is... Um, is I don't understand it either. <laughs> no one understands it. I'm just kind of presenting a lot of uh, thought experiments. And I hope a couple of cool examples. Um, and a main, a main point is sex is not a simple evolutionary adaptation. Like many, many micro evolutions, probably at the molecular level, had to occur to get to this equilibrium where... We now have most organisms that are sexual, but some are evolving into and out of asexuality back and forth kind of to this day. Um, not back and forth. That's the wrong way to think about it. You know what I mean? Like, sure. There's maintaining an equilibrium on some evolving asexuality, some evolving sexuality. Right. Things probably went, again, air quotes, backwards at several points in this process. Evolution is not directional so backwards is the wrong word but you know what i mean they uh, an adaptation could have started correct started to mutate into place and then a change in the environment sent it back the other direction right i guess um you know there's there's so many different selective pressures operating at the same time and some of them can be acting in opposite directions um, these matters are just so far from settled. Theories are being proposed and dismissed regularly, and there's just no answers. Um, now, living in the future, we have, like, computer simulations that we can run to model any theory we come up with. And obviously, it's hard to account for all variables, especially stuff we don't know about the past Earth. Um, but... Combining that with all this new cellular and microbiology research, that's where we're going to find these advances. And maybe we're going to understand it one day. Um, it's kind of all the whole realm of biology kind of needs to come together in order to answer the questions. Um, is evolutionary biologists don't have that micro 
organism knowledge and cellular knowledge that specialists in that field do. And it turns out we probably need that mm-hmm. to know how sex evolved. Cool. Um, so enough with the science jargon. <laughs> Next episode, we're going back with some more sex talk. But we're going to scale down all the heavy sides and scale up the cool animal things, cool explanations and examples. And um, I want to talk about a lot of interesting strategies animals use to find, win, and keep their mates. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. And I hope you learned something new. 